I'll start this episode with a trigger warning. I'll say a phrase, and some of you, probably not all of you, but some of you could get triggered. I wouldn't worry. I think this is a very low-level trigger. I hope so. So here it comes. Ready? Thoughts and prayers. Loved ones, what's going on? I'm Bruce, and this is A Bigger Story. So why do I think that phrase, thoughts and prayers, could be a trigger for some of us? It sounds innocuous enough. I actually looked up innocuous to make sure I was using the right word. It means not likely to give offense or to arouse strong feelings or hostility. So I think it's the right word. There was a time when telling someone that they were in your thoughts and prayers was considered by most people to be an act of kindness, an act of concern. Fast forward to now, and it's more likely to be a trigger. Why? Well, one reason, I think, is the context in which those words are expressed has changed. It's a phrase that's now expressed often on social media, usually with an emoji of hands together in the praying position. So in those instances, it's not being said directly as in face-to-face or voice-to-voice or in a personal handwritten note. Remember those? Another more vivid reason is the context in which we or others type in thoughts and prayers into our social media feeds, and we include those little hands praying because it usually pops up automatically now. Oh, that looks cool. I think I'll keep those. The context is often as a response to a mass tragedy like mass shootings. Even then, I don't think people are being anything other than kind when they communicate their thoughts and prayers on social media in response to a widely reported tragedy such as an act of horrific violence. But if you spend any time on social media, you've probably noticed that there is a growing chorus of angry or at least frustrated responses to that phrase, thoughts and prayers. Why? Well, in the instance of mass shootings, as an example, A pretty significant majority of people think that, at least in the U.S. where I'm located, we could and should be doing more in the way of sensible gun laws in order to decrease the number of mass shootings and really to minimize gun violence in general. And it's a very divisive debate in the U.S. And for those hoping for some effective solutions to mass gun violence, when they see thoughts and prayers flooding social media feeds, they get frustrated and sometimes angry and ask, is that all you got? They ask, what is it exactly that you're praying for? Is it for comfort for the survivors and loved ones of those whose lives were lost? Or do those thoughts and prayers also extend to these tragedies not happening seemingly every other day anymore? But this episode isn't about mass shootings and gun violence or what to do about it, although that would be a very worthy topic. It's about what we mean by prayer. And I want to keep the why of a bigger story front and center, especially in these early episodes. Our big why is to try and discover together what an expansive, thoughtful, and effective spiritual path could look like. So without turning this into a two- or three-day seminar on prayer, let's try to find a few possibilities worth holding on to. And for this episode, I'm going to skip over the most obvious question, to whom are we praying because that would be an episode on the whole nature of God, of the divine, or some energy or source or flow that's transcendent. 
And that's going to need, I don't know, two, three, four, a thousand episodes. And we'll do those at some point. But for this episode, what's meant by the word prayer? And how does it fit into a thoughtful spiritual framework? This isn't going to be exhaustive because we do this in about 20 minutes or less. Just a few ideas. August 15th, 1989. Honestly, I can't remember whether the Major League Baseball game between the San Francisco Giants and the Montreal Expos that day was a nationally broadcast game and I saw it, or if I just saw the replays later that day on ESPN. The pitcher for the Giants was Dave Dravecki. He had made it to the major leagues in 1982, and already in his second season in 83, he made the All-Star team. In 1988, Dave Dravecki got really, really terrible news. Doctors had discovered a cancerous tumor in his pitching arm. He underwent surgery. Half of the deltoid muscle in his pitching arm was removed, and they literally froze the humerus bone in his pitching arm to eliminate the cancer cells. And even then, he attempted a comeback. And despite the advice of his doctors to wait a few years until 1990 to try to pitch again, Dave Dravecki attempted his comeback a year early in 1989. Halfway through the 1989 baseball season, he was pitching so well in the minors that they brought him back up to the majors. And August 10th, he made his return to the Giants and pitched eight innings against the Cincinnati Reds, and the Giants won 4-3. to three. His next start was on August 15th against the Montreal Expos, now the Washington Nationals. The game was in Montreal, and Dravecki pitched three no-hit innings, but then he started to struggle, felt the tingling in his arm. In the sixth inning, the leadoff batter homered, Dravecki walked the second batter, and then on his first pitch to the next batter, the Expos' Tim Raines, that's when it happened. A noise that sounded like a gunshot reverberated throughout the entire stadium, and Dravecki collapsed on the pitcher's mound, except it wasn't a gunshot. Dravecki's humorous bone in his pitching arm snapped under the force of throwing a 90-mile-an-hour fastball, and his arm broke loudly. And doctors discovered another malignant mass in his arm. So more surgeries. And then finally, tragically, it got so bad that his left arm and shoulder had to be amputated. I don't know all the details of how Dave Dravecki coped or managed through all of that. He's written some books about it. And the focus of those books is how his religious faith had sustained him. So now 1997, I was driving through the mountains of North Carolina on my way back to Chicago after visiting my parents, and I was listening to the only radio station I could pull in. A man was being interviewed, and he was talking to the interviewer about his life and his work, which included traveling around the world to talk to others about his religious faith and beliefs. And it was Dave Dravecki. I have to be honest and confess that ordinarily I would not quote a conservative evangelical Christian who's also a card-carrying member of the John Birch Society, but I'm guessing they wouldn't be inclined to quote me either. And what Dave Dravecki said in that interview I heard on the radio in the mountains of North Carolina in 1997, what he said that day has never left me. He spoke of his travels to Eastern Europe, 
and he told the interviewer that he had noticed a very distinct difference between how American Christians pray and how Eastern Europeans pray. Dravecki said, as accurately as I can remember it 25 years later, in America, when people are suffering, they pray for God to relieve them of their suffering. In Eastern Europe, he said, when people are suffering, they pray for God to give them a strong enough back to bear their suffering. I want to repeat that. In America, he said, when people are suffering, they pray for God to relieve them of their suffering. In Eastern Europe, when people are suffering, they pray for God to give them a strong enough back to bear their suffering. I think it's very natural to hope and or pray that whatever has befallen us or that loved one can be just taken away. In my work as a pastor and as a hospital chaplain, I've been with people at times like this countless times, and I understand the desire, the need to pray that prayer, to have something just taken away, to have something reversed. I've prayed it. The problem that arises is that very often, and in my experience, most of the time, those kinds of things don't get taken away. They don't magically disappear. And when they don't, I've seen it happen that resentment rushes in. People experience a crisis of faith. And I've gone down that dark road myself and more than once. And so if prayer is a vocalizing of a communication we're attempting to have with God, with a higher power in the face of suffering and tragedy, and prayer doesn't only happen in the face of suffering and tragedy. We'll talk about that in another episode. But for this one, if prayer is a vocalizing of communication we're attempting to have with God, with a higher power, in the midst of suffering and tragedy, I have found it ultimately more useful, more loving, more helpful to pray that second prayer, the Eastern European one that Dave Drabecki described. God, please give me a strong enough back to bear this suffering. Praying that prayer feels to me like a way of dwelling in this vast energy, this vast divine flow of love and patience and tenderness and care, a fidelity to this possibility that whether or not my suffering or my grief is taken away, that even if those things remain, that love will still be present. Goodness will still be present, however hard I might struggle to see it. And the very act of praying is to locate myself in that flow of divine love and goodness so that I will see and feel and somehow know that goodness is surrounding me and is still possible in my interactions with those whom I love knowing that even if my suffering isn't cured, that still, in other ways, all will be well. I think if we expose ourselves to this flow of goodness and love, we can find ways to be at peace, even to know joy in even the hardest of circumstances. And just one more idea for this episode. And this one comes from Pope Francis. I really love him. It loops back to that expression, thoughts and prayers. 
Pope Francis imagines prayer this way. This is a quote. You pray for the hungry. Then you feed them. That's how prayer works. You pray for the hungry. Then you feed them. That's how prayer works. I don't think we're going to see necessarily this mass revolution and the expression of thoughts and prayers turning into mass, direct, focused action directed toward the relief of whatever instances of suffering we are thinking and praying about. Because that's what Pope Francis meant when he said, you pray for the hungry, then you feed them. That's how prayer works. I mean, that kind of mass revolution in that happening, it could happen. I'd love for it to happen. I'm sure you'd love for it to happen. Pope Francis urges it to happen. If it is going to happen, I have a funny feeling that it starts with us. And if it does, maybe thoughts and prayers won't need a trigger warning because it will become an expression that's more than an expression, but instead a declaration of intent. And if that happened, I think it could draw more and more and more of us into a bigger story. Loved ones, thanks for listening. Stay in touch. I'd really value hearing your questions and input. Bruce at brucecole.tv. Remember you are loved.